Welcome to another episode of Electable. I'm Deb Chubb, and um, we've got a real treat today um, because we're lucky to have uh, David Pepper with us. David Pepper was the uh, state Democratic Party chair in Ohio for several years, um, was also uh, ran for office uh, in Ohio, and um, and has written many books, um, some fiction, and the most um, are the ones I know most, nonfiction, and more recently, um, and also um, a professor now. So, um, and teaching politics. Uh, and at what school? What do you, where are you teaching? I teach at University of Cincinnati Law School. Great, great. That's awesome. So, um, so the new book, um, we did a podcast a long time ago um, uh, mm-hmm. about your laboratories of autocracy, which was, you know, it was really pulling back the curtain on what has been happening in all the states in, in terms of, um, you know, very extremist takeovers, and, um, and you know the gerrymandering and the ability of those legislators to really lock themselves in to those offices. Right. Um, and you follow this now with, um, you know, you follow up on that theme, uh, which is really that because of all of the machinations of the conservative uh, Republicans who have taken over legislatures, state legis- legislatures, um, you know, the lack of accountability is really um, driving states, you know, down the shithole frankly but um and so um and so so we want to figure out what to do about that and so here's right right there um saving democracy and this one is more of a practical guide uh last one was really um really excellent i mean i I don't think anyone in the midwest could read that and not relate in their own state i mean you talk mostly about ohio but that's exactly what happened in indiana right people got in the gerrymandering happened. They were locked in, and then they stopped listening. To anybody, mm-hmm. anybody, didn't matter. Yep. Um, you know, you talk about you know advocacy at the state house, and um, you have you know some uh, a part in here about that, and it's great. It's very uh, hopeful, but yeah, dang. I mean, you know, thousands of people showed up, screamed, banged on the walls. Didn't make mm-hmm. a bit of difference. Everyone went down to the state house, screamed into the abyss, and um, it made no no difference whatsoever. So, um, so we've got to figure out how to fix this. So, um, so uh, first, uh, I know you want to frame this discussion, and it's not uh, take it away from a partisan approach and uh, make it more a fundamental fight for democracy. Right. So, talk to me about that. Yeah, you know the one one way I do that, and, and I think this is important in, in states like Ohio and Indiana, where we know that the Republicans have a majority, but I believe in the end democracy is also a majority. And that means we've got to go from just only talking about it to Democrats and have it, how can we talk about it in a way that appeals beyond that? Um, And so one way I try and do this, and I do this a little bit in the book, but I do it all the time presentations is, if we saw what was happening in our country somewhere else, in our our states somewhere else, Indiana or Ohio, and we, so we take off our partisan hat, we take off our American sort of sense that democracy is just intact no matter what. If we saw the kind of uh, gerrymandering, the kind of lawlessness, the kind of, uh, um, you know, attacks on courts, the kind of extremism totally disconnected the people of states like Indiana or Ohio. If we saw that in an Eastern European country, we would say, wait, you mean they've rigged every election so that the results are guaranteed and a court ruled for them to stop and they just didn't stop? We would say, my God, that country is no longer a democracy. It no longer has a rule of law. That's what's happening in our country. And I think we often don't see it because we're, we are we have partisan lenses on and, and others, 
we just don't pay attention to state houses. So I think the, the good news is I think once people see that it is an attack on democracy, there is a chance and we got to communicate it certain ways that we can talk about. But once people see that, they're actually willing to actually fight for it. And the best example of that that I can point to recently was this issue one in Ohio. They tried to raise the threshold of constitutional amendments from 50 to 60 percent. And when you start studying what that means and the fact that they can pass whatever they want in the state houses. So the only outlet that citizens have to stop it is the constitutional amendment process. What that was was a clear attempt to attack the people's democracy and lock in gerrymandered state legislators to do whatever they wanted. And it was absolutely rejected by Ohio, including a lot of Republican areas. It was rejected in um, in um, Arkansas not long ago. It was rejected in, in uh, North Dakota. I think actually South Dakota. So once people saw this attack on democracy, even though the Republicans are the majority here by a little bit, even though every Republican in the party were telling them vote for this thing, they didn't. They voted no. So I think it's important that we actually frame it beyond just a Democratic issue, because one, it is beyond that. Two, if we're going to win this battle, we have to find more like-minded people that, that aren't just Democrats, but are independents and some moderate Republicans. That's actually how we defeated issue one so well just a few months ago here. Uh, and there are ways to do it that I go through in the book. There are ways to get other people on board. But we have to have people see the battle for democracy is, is bigger than just partisanship. And, and that if we're going to preserve our democracy, we have to unite across other differences to protect democracy. So that's great. So, um, you know, and I, just to clarify, in Indiana, uh, we don't we, they've already done all that here. Um, you know, right. there's no ballot initiatives in Indiana. The Constitution right. requires that um, all ballot items uh, be approved by the legislature. Um, and um, and it's already does take a, 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 a terrible a, a, a big majority. What's that? A super majority to uh, and, and in two non-consecutive sessions of our legislature to pass to you know pass an yeah. amendment to the constitution. So we're already, you know, kind of Yeah, a lot of states out. don't have the direct method we have and that's why we fought to preserve it. Yes. Well, yeah, and I wish. And you know, I can't tell you how many times in the last, you know, year I've been asked, why can't we just do a ballot initiative like they're doing everywhere right. else? So right. so we're already kind of screwed in that way. But right. um but when we talk about democracy, now you have we have to explain that. So you know, if I say to, you know, I go out to my community, I said, hey, I'm out here, I'm fighting for democracy. Mm -hmm. um, how do I make it? You know, how do I talk to them such that they understand what I'm talking about here? I mean, I, I guess mean, I can I, say so, I want you to support Democrat. I want you to support candidates who support democracy. But even that. I mean, I think it goes. But and this is how, again, it worked in in um, in August is that became a democracy battle. It was tied to Dobbs as well, and that was important. And that's a really important lesson I walked through in the book. But generally, like I think when people are really down on politicians, which they are, and, and Republicans are as, at least as much as a lot of Democrats, once you start to say, well, democracy is about the people getting their way when it comes to you know policy, um, the lack of democracy is creating policies that don't reflect the people. Um, and, and once you start to get to that point, I actually think you can really get to a lot more voters uh, because what you can show them is when you lack democracy, that's when you start to get outcomes that make no sense or outcomes that don't reflect the people at all or politicians 
totally unaccountable to the people. Now, you say that the right way. And if enough people of different persuasions are saying that, most people say, well, that doesn't sound good at all. And then the thing I go through in this book is if you make it especially salient on some issues that we know people really care about right now, the most obvious issue is a woman's right to choose. That's not some small minority viewpoint. That's the strong majority of most of this country. It's a strong majority of Kansas. We learned my guess is it's clearly the majority of Indiana. The lack of democracy is what allows abortion bans to be in place. They would otherwise never be in place because if you had fair elections, in real districts, in real, you know, in, in elections that everyone participated in, they wouldn't be voting for people doing the exact opposite thing they want on th- something that's very personal to people. Uh, and so I think my, my advice in the book is don't spend a lot of time on the 30,000 foot level of democracy and what it means. Quickly say the reason they're attacking democracy, and this is true, is to put in place policies that they know you don't want. Uh, that that's literally the reason they gerrymander. That's why they uh, they tried to get rid of the 50 percent plus one rule in Ohio. They didn't want the majority of Americans uh, of Ohioans to get their wish through their voting. And and then you quickly get into, OK, well, what are those issues? Abortion bans, no exceptions. Well, that's something that 10 percent of Americans or fewer agree with. Even if there's a lot of discussion at certain level about what should the exact rules around abortion be? And there's some wiggle room there. Most people support some level of abortion access and the vast, vast majority think it's outrageous that you would say that victims of rape and incest and issues of health and life of the mother shouldn't uh, allow for a woman's right to choose ultimately abortion access or contraception care or fertility care or miscarriage care. So so the the reason they are pushing their anti-democracy agenda is to lock in policies and rules that they know the people don't support. I I give other examples in this book. You know, in many places, it's the attack on public schools. It's the fact fact that they know that if if rural public schools, even in rural places that are Republican, even if if rural public schools start collapsing because they're giving all the money away to their for-profit company friends, they would lose elections and they know it. And, and so there's a lot. And so that's just another example. We have a Democratic governor in Kansas who won by talking about that issue. She so I think one piece of advice is take the democracy conversation and make sure you are attaching it to the issues that are impacted by the lack of democracy. And, and what I would tell you in any state like Indiana or Ohio, where we have these very broken state houses, there will be issues that are that, that are that are having terrible public outcomes because of these broken state houses, it will frustrate people. And those are the kinds of issues I would talk about as I try and explain why all this stuff matters to people. And, and it yeah, gets it beyond party really quickly. Yeah, so our legislature in the last session um, made a huge, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars giveaway um, to private schools. Um, so um, families can take the funds that would have gone to the public school and move them to a private religious school right. um, or a charter school. And so a huge giveaway to wealthy families and, you know, started as, you know, oh, this is this is just for low income families. Um, so Indiana is really um, I mean, I will say, I, I don't know if it's Indiana for some other you know national level um, strategy, but they're very clever at moving one little step at a time. And so, you know, you're like the frog in the water that comes to a boil and yeah, dies, yeah. you know, um, and 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 so and of course, my big fear now is that now that our Supreme Court um, said, yeah, legislature, you can, you can, um, limit, um, abortion. 
um, in pretty much right. any way you want. Um, so that really opened the door. So the next legislative session, they could go in and say, yeah, you know, none of these exceptions, we shouldn't have any of these exceptions. We're just going to take them yeah. away. Um, and of course, um, you know, uh, I think there's a, a there's a piece of legislation that I saw slipped in a couple of years ago that I suspect will, will soon be used to um, criminalize people who help women find abortion. Um, yeah. And it was, a, you know, a bill that criminalized um, what they called coercion and um, required abortion doctors to, you know, uh, question patients. Um, and, you know, we're seeing now people sh uh, change the definitions of meetings like that. There was one in Texas that's keeping people um, from, you know, traveling on roads uh, to get yeah. to the next state. And I suspect that that's what's coming next for Indiana, along with yeah. all the contraception. Yeah, no, it's, it, and you mentioned the school stuff. It's a national playbook. I mean, the, the whole yeah. point of the first book was to explain they are doing most of their agenda through state houses. What, what you just described there is similar to the law they just passed in Ohio on for-profit and, and religious schools. Oklahoma is doing it. I mean, and it's and most of this is being driven by big money. Uh, this is not about educating kids. This is about someone wanting a large piece of public school dollars for themselves. Um, and that's what's driving it. But, but again, you know, ultimately, as bad as it is and is bad, the price it's paid by the giving away of public school dollars are by all the families sending their kids to those schools who often, especially in rural communities, there isn't another school to go to. There isn't some there isn't a, a, a school in that community. And so what I would say long term is the more they do that type of thing, the more if we're organized and running everywhere, we have issues to run on saying that legislator voted to take your money and your school dollars and send it to their private donor. And you are now paying more in property taxes or you are paying for your kid to play football that you never had to pay for before because the very person you represent gave your money away. And so I think that's where I say, and why do they gerrymander? So they can do all that, not be held accountable. Uh, so you know, we've had actually in the last six months, rural Republican legislators in Georgia and Texas vote no on these types of school privatization bills because they know that actually it's going to hurt their schools back home. So there's an there is it's bad. There's there's no there, and it's a national agenda. But it's, at some point, the extremism in this agenda and the costs that ultimately are borne by everyday Indians, I guess Hoosiers, Buckeyes, is so big that it actually gives us something to run on. And, and what they try, they they want to blame all the problems on some far away like boogeyman. You know, it's it's Nancy Pelosi. It's you know, it's uh, the border. No. The reason schools are collapsing in states like Ohio is because of the state house. They took the money away and don't let them change the subject of what, what caused it. They caused it. They know it. And make sure we are pointing to that over and over and over again. The reason we have a Democratic governor of Kansas is because that's exactly what she did. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we have our governors coming up um, next year, so um, uh, that'll be very exciting. We do have a good um, candidate who was our last elected um superintendent of schools. Um, and again, to your point of changing the structure of government um, through all of this um, gerrymandering and superpowers, um, they made that uh, position, they changed it from being an elected position to being an appointed position because they didn't did get they, Oh my gosh. That, that is literally, I, they just did this in Ohio. We elected, uh, there were three positions up for the state school board last year. We have an elected state school board. 
Remember, these are the people who literally are saying education should be driven by parents and the people and not by bureaucracy. Well, like you just described, in Ohio, we had a direct election for the state school board. But we won against three sort of book banning extremists, the three state school board elections that were up last year. It changed the majority of that board. So now they're stripping the power elected board and they want it to all come under the governor's appointment process. So literally, they're the ones taking what was a direct election that reflected the people. And now they're the ones putting under a bureaucracy. So all this stuff about let the parents decide, let the voters decide. In Ohio, the voters did. They said, we don't want any more book banners. We want like public school supported. The minute the voters said that to them, they're getting rid of the power of the people that the voters elected. Right. Same thing. Right. That's right. right. That's what happened. Total Jim Crow tactic. Right. Right. So she's running for governor. Jennifer McCormick is her name and she's wonderful. Uh, she was a Republican and um, was elected. And during her tenure, um, you know, was just banging heads um, daily. And and so at the end of you know her term, uh, they changed that. And uh, and she left the Republican Party dramatically and publicly and is now running. Good. As a Democrat. Well, let's go. Is yeah, she running against like Todd Rokita? No, Todd Rokita is our attorney general. He has not is made a running? move for governor. Uh, he's re- he's going to run for attorney general again, I believe. Oh, okay. Um, but she's going to be running against Mike Brown. Oh, yeah, that's right. U.S. Senator. So, yeah, okay, yeah. that's what it was. Mm. So, um, okay, now speaking of candidates. Now, um, last, you know, in your last book, um, you made the point very loudly about, you know, making sure we have... Um, choices on the ballots in every yeah. single election. And, um, and you know, I, I believed that. I thought that was a great idea. And I did find people, like you say in your book, that was, it, it was shocking to me that Democratic Party officials were like, no, you know, I don't think they're going to win. We shouldn't run anyone. I mean, that to me seemed crazy. Um, and so I will say that they are coming along on that um, issue. Uh, mm-hmm. They're starting to come, come to the, come into the fold and understand the importance of making sure that we have um, a candidate on the ballot in every race. Um, So of course my question now is, um, you know, I've been doing this for several years now. I travel around the state, try to recruit uh, women to run and and then support them and train them and help them, you know, in their campaigns. Um, But it's getting harder and harder. And and after, you know, 2022, which, um, you know, in your book, you talk a lot about, you know, some of the successes in 2022 and everyone right. else, that's all the news coverage. Like you said, it was, everyone said, oh, Democrats did great in 22. Well, not in Indiana. Indiana. Right. Was so um, and it was awful. It was awful than it had been before. And so mm-hmm. now I'm out trying to recruit candidates um, with very little um, hope in my voice. And, right. um, I, you know. What can I mean? What can we tell people? How can we tell people to run? I, I mean, I'll just say what I always say. Oh, they're, now you're silent. Running, the Sorry. running itself is public service. Every door knock, all of that. You're running in a gerrymandered district. Like, if you're going to define success as only whether or not you don't win a district that was rigged against you from the outset, you can win sometimes. It does happen, but. The run itself, think of that as the service and the the, the entire system of their party, of their attack on democracy is run through uncontested districts in red states. That's the entire operation. And and since I read the first book, I'm more convinced of this because I've done some of the numbers. 
Their entire their entire tech democracy is largely about districts that they don't worry about that. And that's where, you know, again, I go this in the second book. I go through this. The woman who wrote the, the abortion ban that led to Dobbs in Mississippi was not contested in the next year. The guy who wrote the abortion ban that, that led to the 10 year old rape victim having to go to Indiana from Ohio wasn't contested. The one who wrote it in Texas wasn't contested. They're running their entire agenda through these districts. So when we say to them, oh, we're not even going to run against you. Well, it's it's literally, of course, they're going to keep doing this. And by not running against them, it means we're not even knocking on a door to say, hey, that person who goes to the parade waving that we all think is a nice person. Actually, they're the extremists that forced that 10-year-old rape victim to go to Indiana. Um, and they're not as happy as, and nice as they seem to be. So maybe think about that next time. Maybe when you see them, bring it up that you don't like it the way they voted. It's the beginning of accountability. And over, and it's a long game. It's the beginning of hopefully in some places starting to claw back lower margins of loss, more accountability, make them worry about these issues that they never worry about when they do not have an opponent. So I think it's got to be viewed from a long point, a long-term standpoint. Um, and, and the alternative is what we have now, which is we literally, I mean, can you imagine that we're giving away our entire nation's democracy to people who only have to fill out a, a pay a filing fee because there's no opponent? I mean, 50 bucks or whatever it is, and you get to keep being an extremist, no accountability. I mean, that's the crazy part. Running against them is 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 a level of, of beginning to bring transparency, accountability, and ultimately bringing back a two-party system in states that essentially don't have them anymore. Um, and I think once I think we have to wrap our conversation with candidates with that. Now, it helps even more if you have a good candidate for a statewide office, because then you can also say, oh, by the way, every door you knock on, you're lifting turnout. You're getting a Democrat to show up that maybe would have never shown up. You're the auxiliary field operation for that statewide candidate. In Ohio, that's um, Sherrod Brown or Supreme Court candidates or Joe Biden. In Indiana, it's your governor candidate. So there's a lot of other things that come from it, but we need to just say to all these folks, hey, are you, if you're fresh about democracy and you are positioned that you can run, running itself, everything you do is, is to the good for democracy. And if you don't win, thank you, because for, for nine months you were lifting democracy, maybe do it again, maybe not, but that it's, a, it's service. It's part of who they are. And I think if you celebrate that the right way, it doesn't have to be depressing if you don't quite. Well, you know, I've run in some tough races uh, statewide. I ran in 14 in Ohio State. 14 was awful. Do I look back? Do I look back at that run as like something I. Re no, I don't. I actually I enjoyed it. I hate, to, I hate to say maybe I'm a glut for punishment as long as people. Now, you everyone needs to have in their mind a path to victory every race they, they run. I, I mean, I did when I ran in 14, but. A run does a run for office does many more things to the good, even if ultimately you don't you don't figure out how to win or or the district was so gerrymandered you couldn't have won. And I think we have to really frame it that way. And I try and give examples in the book of how you do that. That's great. Yeah. So, yeah, the Republican playbook in the last two cycles um, and to increasing degree was. Um, hide out. The Republicans would hide out. They would not do candidate forms. They would not answer questionnaires for, you know, the legal women voters, you know, voter info things. Um, they wouldn't show up. They wouldn't do anything. And then um, two weeks before the campaign would send out these ridiculous, you know, crazy uh, mailers, you know, with, you know, 
when the woman candidates, you know, big X through her face and, you know, she's terrible. Right. Keep exactly. baby killer and the whole thing. So that's been the the strategy so far. And, um, and it's, and it, it's really frustrating for candidates. Um, I mean, yeah, and, and that's going to happen, but again, the, the default, and, and I have the numbers, I go through this in the book and I think you, you probably saw, this is maybe the most shocking part of the book is I go through this chart where, you know, Indiana, 44% of the GOP reps, no, no opponent. Right. Those the Tennessee Republicans who kicked out two Justins, fifty percent of them essentially no opponent. Um, think about what that does to these people. They they are literally passing laws that we know are not popular in their own states. Again, the ten year old rape victim being forced to go to Indiana. That's something that ten percent or fewer of Ohioans agree with. Crazy gun laws. Most people don't agree with those. Most gun owners don't agree with those. Think right. about what it does to these people when they get to pass those laws, and then they're like, wait. They didn't even run against me. What a life. Yeah. What, an, what a life they have. Power, no accountability. We reward it when we do that. And, and so I think that, that what, what should motivate all of us is to, is to understand that we are in a long battle and not running every two years again and again and again is, is essentially dooming us in that long battle versus, hey, our default should be, oh, we run everywhere. Are you kidding me? You know, Obama won Indiana not that long ago. He won Ohio. Why would we not run everywhere? It's a gift to not run everywhere to the other side. It just has to become our new normal. Right. And that we treat the people who help us accomplish the goal of running everywhere much better than we've treated them so far, which is as if most of them, it, we don't really care that they run. I mean, if they feel that from us, no one's going to run. We, they need to feel that we really value what they're doing. Yes. And, and I, you know, I shouldn't make it sound so negative. I mean, those women had great experience. They learned a lot. Um, and many of the women that we worked with um, after their loss, um, you know, used that experience to take positions on boards and commissions and other totally. leadership positions. Uh, and sometimes in the in the in their local Democratic parties or, or run locally. I mean, we I've, I know people ultimately they run for school board. They were, there's a woman right now who ran for state rep running for a city council of a substantial city near here. So. Um, you know, and, and by the way, you also have breakthrough wins. There was a story out of another Midwestern state. I can't remember which one where the, the place had been taken over by election deniers. It was a Trump area and, a, and, and, and someone was appointed. It was an election denier and the Democrat ran for that county seat. and They beat them in a place that Trump had dominated. So when you they, they are getting so fringe, they really are uh, that. The, the more fringe they get, the more you're going to have upset races where someone figures out how to explain that person's just too crazy for all of us, even if you're in that person's party. And we, by the way, we saw another example of that last November where election deniers lost in every single close swing state in the country. Um, you know, Arizona, um, Minnesota, you had um, Nevada, like the Six months out, we I was worried that a bunch of election deniers were going to be secretary of state in these states. They didn't they didn't win in one of those states. Yeah, um, except for Indiana. I know. But I mean, <laughs> you're not quite as swing as those. But yeah, I, I, oh, yeah, I, I can't be saying that. But yeah, I mean, you guys fought hard there as well. I know that. But that was not, you know, remember how scared we were of Carrie Lake yeah. and all these. Other, they all lost because yeah. they were just a little too nuts for people. And I, I think that's happening if we do our job at school board level. And that could happen at other levels if people really see them as extreme as they are. And I will say that race, um, it was um, Diego Morales um, yeah. who uh, won that race against the terrific Destiny Wells, who was yeah. just an outstanding candidate. 
um, and raise good money and, you know, um, but, you know, got like 30 some percent. It was just. But was, you know, you know what? I watched but enough of that race. That campaign, though, did reveal um, yeah. the really bad um, campaign finance laws in Indiana. Uh, I was going to say it also important. revealed uh, I, I watched and, and tried to help when I could. It revealed what a problematic candidate he was. Yeah, that was very clear. And he won. But yet a lot more people by the end that came. And this is what we need to do at every state house race. Imagine that matchup. Imagine the him running at a state house level with no opponent. None of his issues would have come out at all. Right. Destiny running against him. She ran everywhere. She worked hard. All of a sudden, their newspaper stories. Hey, this guy's got real issues. I'd rather have that known than not known. And when we don't run in 50 percent of these districts, you have people with that type of problem, that type of issue. No, it never even gets in the paper because no one's running. No one even brings it up. So she brought a lot more noise and attention to even that race in a losing effort than if you have races where no one runs at all. And again, that's a that's a valuable part of services that she did that. Yes, yes. And we all appreciate it. She worked very hard on that. Okay, so now, so now, like in the book, I want to kind of follow the book, because there's a lot of great, great stuff in here. Um, and, you know, you really turn to what we need to do all these great, you know, how to's. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of great stuff that you have and messaging the work you have in here on messaging, I think is great. I think um, I agree, the Democratic Party just has not been aggressive enough in the messaging that they put out. For um, you know, against these other Republicans, they do take the middle road, and there are still lots of Democrats who walk around saying, "Oh no, we got to be, you know, we got to be like, you know, middle ground. No, you know, right. don't say the word progressive, um, you know." And so, um, and so that's a problem, and that's really, I think, really um, causing a lot of problems for Canada. And so, I appreciate your having that in there, and I appreciate your position on that. Um, and then, um, um, so if you could, um, the one part that you know really interests me a lot is um, the, you know, the approach of including business. So, so your whole theme is, you know, everybody's got a footprint um, and they need to use their whole footprint um, in, in this endeavor, Um, you know, using everybody, you know, are you, you know, what clubs are you in? Are you talking when you go to your clubs? Are you talking when you go to the grocery store? Are you talking when, you know, at work? Um, and that you should be using, you know, your entire footprint. And that's excellent. Right. That really is great. And even I, who have been in this for a while, thought, you know, I was at a thing and I didn't say anything about voter registration. I should have. Um, so right. that's great. Um, and voter registration, you know, is really, you know, it's a great entree, I guess, into, right. you know, the conversation because it's easy. It's nonpartisan. Um, you know, right. you know, it's very safe. Um, and uh, and that that is a good way to really enter the conversation with people. Um, about politics and democracy. Um, and then, um, you know, you really um, have some great examples from other places, um, but um, talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, working with businesses. I mean, of course, in my experience, you know, businesses don't want to be involved in politics. Right. Um, um, and uh, and I love that you've kind of turned that on its head. So tell yeah, I mean, my, my point is, and you have a great example with Eli Lilly. Um, mm-hmm. Just like we do in in Ohio, you know, all of a sudden we got Procter and Gamble, who's next block over from where I'm sitting and Kroger saying, oh, my God, abortion ban in Ohio. We're not going to be able to recruit women to work here. And like Eli Lilly, these are companies that rely on people from around the country, talented young people and states like Indiana and Ohio are not going to be competitive places if 
the right wing stuff keeps happening. And so my it just like Disney experience in Florida, uh, these are attacks on their own workforces and the families of those who work in these companies. And I think Eli Lilly was one of the first companies, I think, to say uh, that they would fly employees. I think they said elsewhere to get access or at least they stated they were opposed to an abortion ban in Indiana. Uh, and so my point is, hey, don't just say that. Do everything you can to lift democracy in your states because the lack of democracy in your state is bad for business. It just is, especially if you're someone who's relying on young, talented people who are from Indiana, staying there to work there, or recruiting them from elsewhere, which is what these companies are doing. So I, I say, you know, I don't need them to start, you know, if they want to give to Democratic candidates, which they're afraid to do in some of these states, you know, that's up to them. But the very least they could use their footprints, their corporate footprints to lift democracy in ways that are not controversial, that many already do. The NFL does this. Use your footprint to lift democracy, meaning your own workforce. Give them the first three hours of election day off, at least. Encourage some of them to be poll workers, which we need. Um, shut If you're a retail place, use it to make sure people know about voting, how to register there. Um, if you know, I'm a, a Procter & Gamble, I make the analogy or I make the example, put a QR code on everything as Charmin and have it be a place where people can, you know, people can register to vote through that QR code. There's so many companies doing this kind of thing, and it's a way for them to play a role beyond right now. Too many companies, because they're afraid of politics because they think, well, I don't want to get into the partisan um, I don't want to get to the partisan back and forth. And the minute I give, that's what's going to, I'm like, I don't, don't, you don't need to give. You have a much bigger role you can play. If you simply take all the people you're interacting with every day as a company, your customers, your workers, your constituents, and you lift them in the, into democracy that many times they're being removed from by voter suppression. Um, and, and there are enough companies doing this that I think it's clear. There's clearly some comfort and cover there. I, and by the way, it's not just companies. And this is where I, I really worry, going back to what Democrats, how we approach it. We are Democrats in partisan politics are approaching voters way too late in the process. Uh, you know, knock on the door with a month ago, chase it down at some food market. Are you registered? It's, it's too late. And often we're not the best communicators. But if you're a nonprofit doing health care for people or doing food, food support at a food um, pantry or a homeless shelter, you're helping people every day who are often not in democracy, but who will listen to you because you're serving them in very important ways. And so it's not just for profit companies, it's nonprofits could be playing huge roles in engaging voters at the moment they are serving their voters because they're their constituents. And I, I go through a lot of examples of that, that again, it could be mayors of cities or city council members, it could be county commissions, but it also could be a whole lot of nonprofits. Uh, one other example I give in the book, Cher Brown convinced McDonald's when he was Secretary of State to have a voter registration form on every tray in a McDonald's. That's not, you know, you're not making anyone bad by doing that. You're actually respecting your customers to say, hey, are you registered? Do you know the rules? Do you have the right voter ID? All these places could be doing that. And far too often, they just don't. And I think if they did, again, it's a service to democracy and to those they serve. Excellent. Yeah. And I would say, so 
I think those are great ideas. And, um, you know, and I'm inspired to, you know, we have an outlet mall here um, to just go from store to store and say, hey, would you say, you know, hang this totally. sign about voter registration with a QR code on it and help people get registered? Absolutely. To vote. There's a great group of doctors called and they have it's called voter V-O-T-E-R, like emergency uh -huh. room. And they have on their badge a QR code. What you know? What a better it, let, let's say they're serving someone who they've helped get healthy and say, "Oh, by the way, we're, we're glad you're back on your feet. Are you registered to vote while you're at it? Here's a QR code. I mean, little example, but think of all, all the places that could be doing that same thing. Right, right, and all and all this is non examples. all of this is nonpartisan. All of this is you're not choosing sides in a battle with your company. And if you're a nonprofit, you're not you're not you're not threatening your nonprofit status. All completely legitimate nonpartisan activity. That as you as you once you hear what I'm saying, you're going to go around and think, "Geez, they don't do it. They don't do it. They, we could all be doing this all the time." Right. Right. And why is it so important that this be done? And this will sound partisan because the far right's attack on democracy they do every single day. They do it in intense ways. The scale of their attack is fierce and big. And if we don't start figuring out how do we scale up our for democracy, pro democracy battle against it, their scale is overwhelming. But if we start harnessing all these different institutions to be part of a pro democracy, nonpartisan effort to lift democracy, if we do all that, then our scale is big enough to fight back. If all we do is what we do now, which is like knock on doors with a month ago, desperately, you know, we just volunteer at a, you know, again, at Finley Market, which is our out, out, you know, outside food market. That's not enough. It's too small compared to what they're doing. You incorporate it into the footprints of all the institutions that we're talking about. That's when it starts to become a very immense scale that will be effective. Great. Um, so, yeah, you know, I would love um, I would love to hear more about get out the vote um, that, you know, to me and my experience has been one of the toughest nuts to crack. Um, it's yeah. so hard to uh, overcome, um, you know, voter turnout problems. Yeah. And and we saw a really poor, you know, in the primary year, it was just, I mean, it was abysmal. Um, it was just terrible this year. Um, and in 22, it was bad. So um, one of the right. things we dreamt up here um, was to canvas non-voters because, you know, I thought we need to find out why they're not voting. Um, right. And so, so we, you know, put together this project and it was, I thought very well done a nice script. You know, we didn't want to shame anybody. We just wanted right. to chat with them about voting and say, hey, right. so, you know, were you able to vote last time? And, you know, why, you know, what were the obstacles and things like that? You know, we knew they were non-voters and but we, we didn't go there saying that we we go, we go to them and we would say, so were you able to, you know, vote in the in the last election last year? And um, um, in my experience, the, the canvassing that I did, we didn't do it as much as I wanted. Um, you know, there was a lot, you know, it's a lot. That's a lot to get people to canvass right. on this not, for, you know, you're not asking for a vote. Um, right. Uh, but I thought it was super important. And I will tell you um, what I learned was that um, people do feel um, a sense of obligation to vote. Um, and right. I can tell you that many of the people, about half the people that I talked to and I'd say, we're, you know, we were able to vote last time. They'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, they're on my list because they didn't vote. <laughs> Right. But, um, but, you know, but, you know, and we talked about this and, you know, and, you know, we didn't want to say, well, yeah, you know, you didn't, you know, we want to say, oh, okay. Right. so, yeah. So, if, you know, if you couldn't get vote, you know, what would be the obstacle? <laughs> what, right. What interesting. So, yeah, it was very interesting. And I wish we could do more of that because, um, because I think even just the exercise um, really helps people realize their sense of obligation, their sense right. of duty. 
True. About, you know, people do feel a duty. Um, and, yeah. and I thought it was, I thought it was a good exercise for that reason. Um, mm -hmm. but I don't, you know, and I think it, it would help voter turnout, I think, to have, you know, have these conversations yeah. with non-voters. Um, but again, that's a yeah. lot of work. It's a lot of work. Yeah. You know, the thing I put in the book that I, well, a couple of things. One is I think this is where the messaging really matters. And I go through this in the messaging chapter. If what we do is, and this is a danger in states like Indiana and Ohio, where we're so worried about that we're Democrats and the rest of the state may not lean our way. If we milk toast our message so much to accommodate that, that it's so watered down, it has so little sort of spice to it that maybe some sliver of swing voters will like us more. But if it's so milk toast, voters who need to hear something exciting to show up will think, well, I have heard nothing. I've heard nothing from my own candidate that makes me actually think it matters to vote. Now, maybe they think, well, I should vote, but if you don't, if, if you don't have something that's exciting, you know, we some candidates, for example, I saw it, it was painful to watch, abandoned and said they didn't agree with the Biden's plan on student debt because I think they thought a few swing voters may um, may vote their way. Well, you just gave all young voters probably the single biggest, you, you just took away the single biggest reason they may have voted for you. And then you shied away about talking about abortion access because you thought, well, maybe that'll seem too liberal. Well, that's the other big reason you might have gotten votes. So all of a sudden, you literally, by being so concerned about a sliver of swing voters, you just gave, a, who may or may not have been moved by any of that, you just gave away the number one and two reasons that young people would have shown up to vote for you in that election. And so I think some of it is you need to be smart about messaging to know messaging is about turnout. It's not just about persuading undecided voters. It's about telling that voter at the door something where they kind of know they should vote. You want them thinking, my God, I I have to vote. I mean, this is it. This is at stake here. I have, you know, and that happened, by the way, in August in, in Ohio. Our democracy was at stake and abortion access was at stake. And so a lot of voters who skip a lot of other elections were like, I have to vote. So some of it's messaging. But the other thing is we have to do what you did on an ongoing basis. And the way that I go through the book on how to do this is we have to be a lot better. This is very low hanging fruit if we get the right mindset about constant precinct organizing. That what you were doing in your canvas, a precinct leader should be literally doing all the time as part of in our state, we call the precinct captains that they are always surveying the voters of their precinct. They're always calling them together. They know exactly who voted, exactly who didn't vote, and they're engaging them. So they, they even know, you know, they even know why they didn't vote. And then they try and sort of deal with that, or they know what issues those people care about. The precinct is the lowest level of, um, of um, you know, or it's the lowest unit. Right. It's the most approachable unit. And if every um, if everyone did that at the precinct level and took ownership of the 400 Democrats in their precinct or whatever that number is, if 20 percent did that, we'd have different outcomes. If 40 or 50 percent, we turn the world upside down. Almost no one does it. And, and you can't do it the way you can't just if you think about it as an individual canvas, um, it's not going to happen. If every precinct organizer decided this is part of what I do all the time. 
it would change everything. It would. I would. So, and so I, I think that's in, in, in the end, that, that's how you'll. And by the way, one other thing, mm-hmm. that way, the, the, the knock on the door from your governor candidate next is your is the election next year? Yes. Yeah. The knock on the door for that governor candidate is not the first time these voters have heard from us, which is too late. That door from that campaign with a month to go, that door knock, the voter says, oh, yeah, I've heard all about you, my precinct captain. We've had several meetings talking about your race. Thanks for being here. That's the last of many interactions as opposed to the first and only interaction. That's how you motivate people to show up. It's a constant communication. Right. That's great. Yeah. So, yeah, my other um, big bright idea was to do um, strategic planning with um, county chairs. Um, Absolutely. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I did not get the support that we needed to do that. Um, but that was, you know, we have 5,176 precinct committee chairs in, in Indiana. And, you know, and I like you say, if you could get half of them to do this, oh, it would half flip. would be. Yeah. You do half and you are way up there. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and I, I tried to, it's hard to do. I, I don't want to act like it's easy. But no. but what the other thing about it that I like is there's always, you know, Indiana will say, well, how, you know, w- the, why don't we get enough support from the DNC? Why don't we get yeah. this? This is something you can do without any support from everybody, anybody. Right. If everyone on the ground says, I'm going to do it. And so this is about a shift in mindset more than you don't need the national powers that be to decide that Indiana matters for them to do this. This is something that we just like running everywhere. This is something we all can control wherever we are. And you could have 40 percent of Indianans, of Hoosiers organizing their precincts if if somehow it was communicated the right way. And it it wouldn't matter if you didn't have if Biden targets in the end or not doesn't matter you could still do that for, and that would help your governor candidate immediately it would i know yeah nobody targets indiana nobody does anything in indiana even sister district doesn't uh, do anything in indiana it, it's a really uh, it was sad when i first started this work um about four years four or five years ago i started calling around thinking well somebody's already doing this right so no no and nobody nobody nationally works with indiana unfortunate but um you know but anyway i don't want to sound so you know discouraging um, and I and I appreciate your work because uh, you um, have given me lots of hope, um, lots of great ideas and lots of hope. Um, you know, it's, uh, I feel like uh, going to businesses and talking to, about democracy is going to be successful in getting more people involved. And that's, you know, that's key um, and getting more people to run. Um, you know, I, you know, like I said, I did a lot of recruiting around the state and uh, often, you know, the first response for most women was, oh, you know, not, I'm not qualified. And of course, you know, you're like, okay, let's look at the guy who's in there now. Um, anyway, but um, but then what I've realized, if I said to those um, potential candidates, okay, well, if you're not qualified, who do you know in this district who's more qualified than you? And often that was that was a winner. That um, really turned them around and made them a little more willing. So- no, uh, I- I mean, the, the hardest thing for me, it, running isn't for everybody. I, I agree with that. I, you know, I've had conversations with people where after about 10 minutes of hearing how busy they were or this or that, I was like, maybe you're, maybe you're not the one to run, but let's all together agree that whoever it is, we are not allowing this district to go uncontested this time. So 
if you can't run, who are 10 people you'd recommend I talk to who should? And I just think, again, it's kind of like the precinct executive. We need to just all of us take ownership. Everyone in Indiana, in your district, whether you're the one to run or not, if it's you, wonderful. If it's not, go find your most impressive friend or find if someone taught you history for 25 years, they may be the best candidate of all time because I mean, they taught you and they've done it for 25 years. But whatever it is, make a commitment wherever you live in Indiana that your district will not go uncontested next time because you and the people you know are going to together find a candidate. Um, and so, I, again, a lot of this is just a shift. We have literally allowed ourselves to, to convince ourselves that that allowing these extremists to run without opposition is okay, that it somehow is perfectly fine. And we have to decide, no, we will never do that again. Our business as usual forevermore is, of course, we run everywhere. That's just what we do. You mean you don't run everywhere? What's wrong with you? I mean, we have to have that be, and, and that involves people taking ownership of their district. Right. And, and when, um, when people run, oh, yeah, that's our candidate. We run every time. This year, it's so-and-so. We are all on board to make sure that candidate has the support they need to bring attention and transparency to this office, to this district. Yes, excellent, excellent. Okay, so we're running out of time, but I do want to ask you to comment on um, something uh, that you've said in the book, and I think you said it before, You know that our Constitution requires our federal government to ensure that state uh, governments um, run as republics. So right. can you tell me a little bit more about that? And like, I mean, do you feel like there's um, some kind of path there to fixing this situation? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the bigger picture is from uh, the reason I point to this is because I want us to all realize how unacceptable it is as a matter of our own country's constitution that the state of Indiana is what it is. These places are not. I think, consistent with the constitutional guarantee that we all live in essentially representative democracies. These highly gerrymandered systems where the people can't even affect their own constitutions, they have no choice in who runs their state, they, they don't meet the definition in the constitution of how a state government's supposed to run. And so I think it, I, I write it first and foremost for people to understand that this is not how, just like we all should have a right to vote, everyone in Indiana has a right to have a state government that actually is a representative democracy, or as the founders would have to a republic, which is what they meant by that, where the, where the majority view should generally be reflected in how that, in, in the policies of that government. And when that's not the case in dozens of states, we should all say, um, we need to fix it. Not only in a few states, not only in a few states where we happen to think we can win U.S. Senate races, but in all states. Now, I think it should make us think through our strategies to be consistent with the constitution but i also think when we have legislative when we have a u.s senate u.s house control my point is they should act upon this constitutional guarantee again the guarantee says it's article 4 section 4 of the constitution the united states shall guarantee to all states a republican form of government it's not maybe should guarantee it shall and so the next time we have control of the of the Senate, the House and the presidency, which I hope is, you know, knock on wood, January 25, they need to pass Voting Rights Act language that lives up to that guarantee, which means they should ban gerrymandering from a federal at the federal level, as in a national standard that says this is an illegal gerrymander, no matter what state you're in. They should that that would be fulfilling 
the guarantee that they take an oath to when they become a federal office holder. So I, I think I, I highlight it because it, it, again, should be a kind of a splash of cold water on, on anyone, Democrat or Republican, who thinks it's OK that all these states are living through the extremist, non-democratic hell that you and I are living in in our states. It's not not only is it wrong, it's not consistent with our Constitution. The founders worried that this would happen. And so they said, just like if, if um, you know, a foreign country invaded Indiana, Indiana would expect the U.S. government to come to their defense. The Constitution, in the same clause that it guarantees that you'll be defended in case of foreign invasion, also guarantees that you will have a Republican form of government. So I just think it underscores how how much this is not how it's supposed to be. And how much, whether we're federal office holders or just everyday Americans, we should be fighting to get a sense of democracy back in all these states that, that we live in that, that really do not meet a definition of democracy right now or largely the rule of law. Great. Wow. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I really I, I so appreciate everything that you have done. So um, is there another book on the way? You know, not uh, not immediately. I, I actually one thing I'm doing, and if anyone here is on Substack, follow me at David Pepper. Um, if you are or follow me at Twitter and I at David Pepper. I actually one thing I've really convinced of is that a lot of the problem, like this guarantee clause, is that people don't know a lot of the um, a lot of the election law rules or voting rights rules of our of our country. And so I teach election law and voting rights. And I've created a, a substack called the Voting Rights Academy, where I'm teaching, you know, all this stuff. So it's a little bit of a different type of book, but I do these now every couple, twice a week, if people are interested, you know, how did voter ID come about? That was obviously from Indiana. Uh, what's, what's, uh, this, what's gerrymandering about? How is it, how could we challenge it? And I do these every couple of days. I may turn that into a book since I've already written all the chapters anyway. And I actually think, I don't know who's going to read it, but I think we all need a much better grounding like the guarantee clause in what our voting rights are and how they can be protected and how the rules can be challenged. I think most Americans honestly don't know that much about it, except for the most obvious cases like Bush v. Gore. And so that may be a book of the future, just sort of a, a, a non-lawyer voting rights academy. So everyone knows what our voting rights are, how they're in danger and how we can best protect them. Excellent. Oh, well, I look forward to that. And so um, and people can reach you now. I know you do um, regular, you know, little um, it's not a podcast, but like videos that you um, that you um, put on. And, um, and you mentioned in your book um, how important it is to have your whiteboard there to uh, explain things. And I've seen many of your videos and they are very good, very good, very clear, very, very instructive. So um, and so where can people find that? Okay, on I mean, the easiest thing is if you go to follow me at David Pepper on Twitter, I always am uh, pushing out links. If um, if you are on Substack, if you go to David Pepper, you'll see uh, you'll, you can follow me there. I also, you know, for the for the real cutting edge folks, I, I throw some of my videos on TikTok. I have a channel on YouTube. Um, but Instagram underscore David Pepper, but the easiest by far is, um, is, um, uh, Twitter at David Pepper Substack. The other thing is I have a website called saving, uh, called save democracy.us. 
a lot of the lessons from my book, I love that if everyone bought the book, but I'm, I'm more about people understanding this stuff than necessarily buying books, but please buy the book if you're interested. But a lot of the, like the footprint you mentioned, remember the footprint? Yep. Yep. I, you download it from the website, a PDF, print it out, fill it out. So if you go to savedemocracy.us, a lot of the key lessons from the book are at that website. That's great. Um, you I could mean, also that's how I was feeling. Yeah, I was What's, feeling like, wow, I wish I had just like just a little workbook with the. You yeah, know. well, that's so the book is, as you know, the book is sort of a workbook. It has all these little diagrams and footprints. Mm -hmm. Well, those footprints are available. Here's one of my footprints. They're okay. available to use on um, on um, what's on uh, that SaveDemocracy.us. So go ahead and right. go there. there are all places where you can kind of and if but if you sign up for me at Twitter or Substack, you'll get all this stuff on a regular basis. Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm sure I'll be following it and lots of others will too. All right. Well, thank you so much, David. This has been awesome. I so appreciate you coming on and chatting with me about this. Such important work you're doing. It's really awesome. Hey, thanks. Good to be with you. Yep.